like they they advertise one match by crashing a car into one of the wrestlers. Not a total victory of Russia, which now we're seeing. This he goes on. Gigantic bag of flaccid dicks. <laughs> Sorry. Continue. Which, when you open them up, you find out that they're all cockroaches inside. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. No, I don't know if anybody else is ever going to laugh this hard at anything we Probably. say. Uh, we can actually both look out my window right now and see some very pretty yellow flowers that I'm going to be eradicating. today into uh the the part of world history for sixth grade where we start talking about early humanity and uh, specifically the neo paleolithic and neolithic periods and uh agricultural revolution and what i've done uh, last year and now this year for that unit is one of the first things i do is i uh show my students a video about utsi the Iceman, mm-hmm. uh because i mean it's it's fucking fascinating like yeah uh if, if you're any kind of an archaeology nerd you already know what i'm talking about but uh the short version of it is that uh in 1991 a group of uh, hikers, really, but really high altitude hikers, because they're close to eleven thousand feet. So, like, in that weird zone that's not quite mountain climbing and and not quite hiking, uh, they found a body in the Utsal Mountains, which is part of the Alps, um, in in Italy, but close to the border with Switzerland. And uh, the authorities showed up and started digging this body out. And first, they thought it was just going to be a hiker, and then they figured out, no, this is not just a hiker. Uh, and and lo and behold, it was the body of a Stone Age uh, traveler, which which then got even more complicated ten years later when they figured out no, he didn't die in a storm. He he was shot in the back with an arrow. And so there many, there's so many layers to the story that that can can be things that I can pull on you know to to get the kids interested and engaged and kids eat it up because it's amazing and. You know, and so today or tonight, this evening, talking with my wife and my son about how our days went, I mentioned that, you know, today was the day I got to show the video about Utsi the Iceman. <laughs> and my son is now old enough that, like, he knows who Spider-Man, like, Spider-Man is his favorite superhero. And and everything, like, anytime we play any kind of game, everybody has superhero powers. And I've got, I've got ice powers and fire powers and water powers and you know and so i mentioned utzi the Iceman, and he says well who 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 was this and i explained to him who he was and you know why it's a big deal and it's really cool and everything 
And I try to leave out the parts about him being shot in the back with an arrow and, and like us trying to still figure out this earliest homicide case in literally human history, as far as we know. And, um, and then my wife and I move on to another object of con- or another topic of converse- conversation. And my son pipes up, well, where did he get his powers? Blink, blink. Uh-huh. What, uh, what, what, what do you mean? Well, you said he's, what's he, Iceman. Okay, no, that's, sorry, kiddo. That's, that's not where he got the name from. He got the name because they found him in the ice. Oh, okay. I wish there really was a superhero who had ice. Yeah, I do too. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there was this moment of profound disappointment from, <laughs> um and and yeah that's what i've got going on uh in my life right now is trying to to you know uh uh bridge that that gap between explaining to him that that's not really how the real world works and it would be really cool maybe sort of sometimes if if that was the way it did so how about you who are you and what have you got going on Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin and U.S. history teacher up at the high school level up here in Northern California. Uh, And uh, I, uh, in addition to the show that I always plug at the end of this show, the the live pun show, Capital Punishment. In addition to that, I also take place in a number of uh, other pun shows internationally online. Uh, Recently, I was on one. You could probably find it. It's uh, UK... It's not UK pun off, although it's tertiary to that, or it's it's related to that. It's called UK Out Punched, and it's hosted by uh, Ian McDonald, a friend of mine from Scotland. Uh, so that show is very similar to the format of my show. Uh, so you know, quick, rapid fire, you're you're dueling, yeah. uh, and it's basically winner stays kind of gauntlet matches. So let's say that you and I are on, and the uh, topic is I don't know rivers. And we go back and forth, back and forth until one of us takes too long and the host boots you. And then the next person comes on. And so I'm staying and we go back and forth, back and forth until one of us, you know, bombs out. And then the next person denied. Right. So it's a it's a four or five person show. And uh, I I set the record the first two times that I was on it. And then another person set a record. And the way I did it was. I never left. Like people just <laughs> came up and lost, came because, up and lost, came up and lost. Because of course you didn't leave. Right. So I went coast to coast. But, you know, so you and I are A and B, but in the next round, B and C will start. And so I have to wait my turn to get on there. So other people might go coast to coast, you know? Yeah. And then the next round, it's C and D will start. And then the next round, DNA will start. And I'll be back, you know? And, yeah. So there are ways to mollify it. So I set the record and then I set the record again. And then I was told that somebody that I used to have on my digital show set the record. Um, And I was super happy for her. And I thought it was awesome. And I couldn't wait to like get a chance to go against her. And uh, she's this wonderful woman. I I love her uh, out there. Uh, Susan, um, if you're listening, thank you, first of all. Um, And uh, hope, hope the pregnancy is going well. Um, But she, uh, she and I were A and B and I, I think I, I think she got booted um, and I stayed 
And so I went coast to coast one round. And then the next round, I bounced out immediately because the host, and this happens every single show, the host didn't understand my pun. And so now we're too smart for the room. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, uh, I've or got too a brand niche for the room. Yeah. No, smart. Uh, and- <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. At least okay. for the judges. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but so here's the thing. I, uh, I don't, I detest arguing on a show. Um, it's a competition. Yes, but it's a goddamn pun to competition. Take your lump, move on. Yeah. Um, now I will tell you that if I get booted <clears throat> and then it's proven that later that that was a pun, they give me the point. But what yeah. happens is I've lost the opportunity to go coast to coast and just gather all the points. Yeah. So I lose out on a lot, right? Yeah. Um, but again, nobody tunes into a pun turn- tournament or a pun competition to discuss legalism. So I... Uh, nobody? I no, I don't. I Are hope you not. Sure? Jesus. Okay. All right. Yeah, I hope not. So okay. I throw it into the group chat that cannot be seen on the screen. And I said, yo, this this was a pun. And here's what it was. I got the point. Um, next round, um, I do it again. And it's another one he doesn't get. So, no problem. Uh, I just shoot a take message. Take your lump. Like, shoot a message. Thing. Yeah. So then the next round, I get real like, like you know. And then they bring us all back out, and I'm like, you know, and they're like, oh, and Damien had this one because it was a pun, and, and and you know the host Ian, he's like, oh, I didn't understand that. Blah blah blah. I'm like, yeah, Ian, it's 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 nice that I can teach you things. Um, so I'm a little <laughs> passive aggressive, <laughs> but in a funny way. Yeah. And uh, so then. <laughs> So then I'm back up <laughs> uh-huh. and I made a pun about uh, a breed of cat called the Scottish fold. Yeah. And uh, but I, I said, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the map of who's from where there's somebody from uh, from London on the show. But also there's two of you above the Scottish fold of the map. Um, And then I immediately went into my microphone and said, that's a breed of cat, Ian. And so because you couldn't not. Right, because you couldn't just now, be I'm like not being legalistic. I'm not arguing. No, no, am, no, no. But I'm absolutely you're, but you're like, making a dig. Yes, and totally I think that, that shit's dig. funny. Yeah, um, well, it and is. It was, but so I do it again <laughs> for the next three puns, and then suddenly <laughs> I get booted. <laughs> suddenly, <laughs> and he boots you know, me. You did, so, so then, so, but then, yeah, go ahead. You didn't deserve it, but you had it coming. No, I deserved it. Um, <laughs> So, okay, so then, recognize that. Yeah. Oh, I was, <laughs> I was just jabbing him. So then it comes back around to me being on and I show up on screen and then he immediately boots me and he does this for the next two rounds. Wow. By the end of the game, <laughs> I'm still winning and I've got, okay. So the record is 69. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, And I have 64 and now we're in the final round. There's no goddamn way in the world that I'm not going to shatter this record. Yeah. But he changes the rules on the fly just to fuck with me. Because oh. so he, he doesn't like Star Wars or Star Trek. So he said, we're going to do Star Wars and Star Trek. And for every pun I don't get, I take away a point. And I said, there's no way to get more points. He's like, nope. God fucking damn. So I had to do the most basic <laughs> ass pun. Oh, it's so hilarious. <laughs> It was so, so good. 
It was so good. And like afterward, you know, you know, everyone's like, you, you cool with that? You know, and that, that happened. I'm like, I thought that was brilliant. Like that was fantastic. Even if I lost, it would have been because he contrived my loss. Like it was, oh God, it was so fun. It was so gratifying. That's, that's so, a wonderfully British kind of petty. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a Scot. So it's. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. But still British Isles. Like, yeah, yeah no, that works. So, but, oh yeah. God, it was yeah, a fun thing. Amazing. So you can find that on YouTube, actually. Uh, that show, that's, yeah, it was it was the September version good. of the uh, UK Outpunched. Okay, uh, it's cool, so cool. fun. So go check it out. So cool. Yeah. So that's what I got going on. Um, All right. In the meantime, uh, last time we spoke of the Sandinistas and uh, a miniseries that was a money grab that could have been something that wasn't, but yeah you still had enough of the culture that it, it kind of fed into some stuff well if you were fed into or fed off of fed off of i think okay probably were right. better yeah yeah um but if you recall the warner brothers studios wanted a series and so they said yeah go ahead and do this the the mini series so that it's a pilot for the series yeah so um and that's that's what happened right um yeah so now let's turn our attention to the two series uh we'll probably only cover the one series uh in this episode and then the next okay. episode and possibly the one after that because there's a lot of shit that goes into that that final series yeah um i just find it fascinating that like we haven't let it go like we tried this show four times <laughs> Four times, and each time it taught us something different about ourselves. Each time it shows us a different funhouse mirror. Well, okay, here's here's the thing. Mm. Kind of kind of my my preemptive hot take. Okay. I don't know if it could really be considered preemptive because we've already talked about, you know, the first two miniseries. But whenever you wind up talking about authoritarianism authoritarianism is the y-axis on the chart Mm -hmm. and anytime you start talking about the high end of the y-axis on the chart people on both sides of the x-axis are going to point fingers at the other side Mm. and so it's really easy if you're talking about any form of authoritarianism it is really easy for somebody to get behind the funhouse mirror to use your metaphor mm-hmm. and, and bend it in a new way to paint the other side as the people doing the distortion. Maybe, but what I've noticed with this series, yeah, nobody's that clever. <laughs> Johnson was the first time and then yeah, Tartikoff no. was like, yeah, but make it spacey. And and then he did lizard people. Yeah. And then after that, yeah. it's just been like lizard people, lizard people, lizard people. And each time it's roughly the same plot. And each time it shows us something different. Incidentally about ourselves. And, and I think it's because you don't have a singular writer who is guiding the vision. You have it by committee each time after the first time. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I think that's that. really the thing. You've got okay. a hive mind, and a hive mind will pull from the environment more. So, and yeah, well, and there's also the issue of that hive mind dealing with a shifting Overton window. 
Exactly. Over time. Yeah, although the first three occurred within two years of each other. Well, yes. So this is true. Which, but the, I'm I'm thinking yeah. I'm thinking mostly of the shift between the third one and the last one. Oh well, we got to get there with first, Marina so. Bacarin, but we got to get there first. So so here we so go. So the first uh the first of the two series, the first series, not the mini series, but the first series is called V the series. It's a clever title. Um, oh yeah, original. It, it premiered on October 26, 1983, and it ran until March 22, 1984. It was exactly one season minus one because it was that final episode was canceled before production be- began. Um, wow. It and, did yeah. that well. Yeah. <laughs> and it certainly wasn't planned as only one season because they they fast tracked kind of the plot a bit for the penultimate, then the ultimate episode. And it ended on a cliffhanger. It was just a super weak cliffhanger. Um that said, they had to know by the end that it was pretty likely not to get picked up uh, again, though, because shit was getting terrible at the end. Um, it just unraveled. So at the outset, V the series was faced with contradictory set of conditions. Um, the budget was slashed hard by Warner Brothers uh, and the cast was rather large. Uh, the settings were on location quite often and the special effects and makeup were extensive. And notice I didn't even get to the writing yet. Um, that's because the writing wasn't Johnson's at all, save for a couple of excerpts that actually ended up just getting reused. Like they literally just took footage and reused it. Ugh. The writers were many and mostly who were fo- they were folks who had made a living writing episodes for other shows throughout the 1960s and 1970s and into the 80s and 90s. Uh, the best that I can describe it is that via the series wanted to be it can't happen here fascism under Reagan, but it turned into soap opera science fiction right quick. I'm I'm going to I'm going to argue that mm-hmm. it it didn't turn into it. It was that out the gate. My my memory of the this week, you know, Friday night or whenever it was, it was on, you know, and the and the kind of TV trailers they'd show of, you know, clips mm-hmm. from it. It was like no, no. This is this is totally, you know, uh, Falcon Crest with lizards. I'm gonna disagree. Well, in the first I, couple episodes, okay. it All right. like like I, out the gate, it was trying to do it can't happen here. Okay. Um, and then yeah, it went quick. It went quick. Okay. Um, I mean, admittedly, yeah. I was like nine. Ah, so gotcha. Maybe ten, but yeah. So- the thing that this particular series had going for it, though, was that uh, the theme of collaborators in an occupied territory was the hot thing. Uh, and frankly, this was the most fascinating approach that the series took. And ultimately, I think it made it intellectually more worthy of note than the final battle miniseries, which was largely spy versus spy. The basic beginning plot uh, is and an, an overarching plot to some extent for the series is this. Liberation Day is now an international holiday uh, celebrating the defeat and kicking out of the visitors, as we saw in V, the final battle. Diana has been captured and is going to be put on trial for her crimes or her atrocities. Very Nuremberg-y feel to the whole thing, actually. And the rest of the resistance has all but fizzled away, going their separate ways again. And the same thing with the fifth columnist. However, the leader of the company that mass produced the red dust decides that Diana should be captured and route to the trial and secreted away to a cabin in the woods above L.A. 
His name is Nathan Bates, and he's played by Lane Smith, whom you might recognize as the mayor who collaborates in Red Dawn. Okay. Yeah. Uh, talk about typecasting, I guess. Yeah, like, no kidding. All right. Uh, he he plays the CEO of Science Frontiers. And what I find interesting here is that the scientists were the ones who were the first to be disfranchised in the original miniseries, right? And while they were helpful to the cause when it was occupied, now that it's over, a big-ass company of capitalist science is now hubristic and nefarious and willing to work with the villains toward mutual gain, as I'll explain in, in, in just a second. But also... They're the same company that now produces the antidote to the red dust for visitors who are still on the planet, which, by the way, is a single pill every 12 hours. The press also used to be sharply divided, either heroes like Donovan or Quislings like Christine. And now in the series, they are all predatory and aggressive, stalking Elizabeth in the first episode. Donovan is no longer a reporter in any way. Diana gets shot en route to her trial in a very Reagan getting shot kind of way. She's whisked away on a stretcher and Donovan and the fifth columnist Martin go both go looking for the ambulance. They steal a helicopter to do this because uh, you can do that. Um, and it turns out that Bates orchestrated the whole thing with the help of a very well paid Ham Tyler uh, in order to offer Diana a deal. His plan is to offer Diana better accommodations and not a trial in exchange for her expertise and help so she can give him uh, alien technology. He's promised Ham Tyler a shit ton of money and that when he does kill Diana, Ham Tyler can be the one that kills him. Uh, all right. So mm -hmm. the the Diana half of that equation is very Operation Paperclip. Yes. It's like corporate operation paperclip yes we we want to we want to get what's in your head yep and so we're willing to give you a free pass on mm -hmm. all of the terrible shit you did house arrest but yeah. you don't get put on trial yeah absolutely all right now donovan and martin try to track her down in a helicopter they stole like i said martin absolutely wants to kill her because he knows that she'll signal the fleet because the fleet hasn't left. Mm. Mm. Donovan wants to have proof that she's alive and then to get that to the police. Martin knocks him the fuck out. Um, and when Donovan comes to, the cabin is burning and Diana has taken Martin's last pill. Martin crawls to Donovan to die in his arms. Eventually, Diana gets to a tracking station where she sets up a homing signal. Tyler and Donovan are again working together for slightly different aims. But they fail to recapture her, and she escapes, starting everything off. It turns out the visitors were just hiding behind our moon. Oh, also, okay. Elizabeth ends up growing up into an adult by the next episode. Well, okay. So, that's a trope. I know that that's a trope. I don't know what the trope is. But I, to go I, from toddler to fucking adult. Well, obviously, okay. you're getting around labor laws. Well, okay. one. You're hiring an adult. One, yeah. right off the bat. Yeah. Two it had already been established that her growth rate was, was mutant like and not yes. natural. Yes. So it's not, it's not outside the realm of possibility. It's, it's a, it's a, in oh, this world, it's a justified trope. Yes. To use again, TV trips language, you know, because yes. on, on soap operas, it's like, well, okay, no, we need to introduce new characters and the kids of the old characters are the best ones to do that with. 
so we're just gonna like randomly every couple of years age the teenagers up into you know 20 somethings right you know and and that's just how soap operas have worked since time immemorial yeah here there's at least the the macguffin of well you know she's half alien and and we don't know like, right right you don't know right <laughs> so yeah you know i'll i'll give them i'll give them that and mm-hmm. and then i will take it away by saying that right there is a very early sign like an instantaneous one of oh i know where this plot is going yep like genre wise we're oh yeah oh we're totally we're totally getting away from political discourse into uh-huh. suds this oh, is this is going to be you know calgon take me away time oh here. there's going to be a, a love triangle cuz now she is physically the same age as her mom oh oh no oh yes oh john ringo no <laughs> So in the first episode, oh, we, we've set things up nicely with a few more cool things meant to come. First, there's going to be the Freedom News Network, which I love. This is the thing that I loved about each episode. Um, and and at the beginning of each episode, after uh, after a few episodes, you see the Freedom News Network. It's really cool. Secondly, we now know that we're seeing businessmen working specifically against the law to advance their own needs and find some way to collaborate with our former enemies mm-hmm. in 1984. In the second episode, Diana meets Lydia, the blonde version of herself, who is the who was Janine in Spital Tap, <laughs> which I never got over. Um, you, <laughs> and their hair. Oh, their hair. Well, it was 80, 85, 84, 84. still 84. Yeah. Aquanet was a thing, was a titan of of hair fashion at this point. Now, Elizabeth is a full grown woman and she's getting around the pest, you know, and this, this again, this does get around production laws. Absolutely. Like cast a woman instead of a child. Um, The police actively start shooting almost immediately at Donovan, giving him a reason to ally with Ham Tyler again. Uh, And the visitors try to kidnap Elizabeth, but the red dust is still a problem until Diana figures out a pattern. Environment matters and that the red dust needs a dormant season to keep itself active. I don't get it, but okay. This means that she has to reinvade L.A. in order to keep more red dust from being put into the atmosphere. Because that's where it's being produced. Okay, MacGuffin. Cool. So yeah. So they blow the shit out of the out of LA from their mothership, and the invasion begins anew. Okay. Yeah. However, because of Nathan's control of science frontiers, Diana needs him because he produces the antidotes. And LA becomes a kind of a free city. And uh what's his name? Nathan. Yeah. No. I always okay. So his name, the the actor's name, is, um, oh god, I said it just a second ago too. It's it's killing me. Um, oh his the actor's name is Lane Smith, and his character's name is Nathan Bates. And I want to say Nathan Lane the whole goddamn time, which would ah. absolutely change the tone and the tenor of the show. Um, oh, for the better. <laughs> oh frankly. yes. Oh yes. Okay, Nathan Bates. Um, so she needs him because he's still making the thing right. And so L.A. becomes a free city because Bates essentially 
says that um, if he's got this like wrist pulse reader and if it's destroyed or removed from his wrist or it detects that he doesn't have a pulse, red dust gets released everywhere into the atmosphere and therefore no armed visitors are allowed in L.A. and he'll give her back her mothership in exchange. Wow, that's a magnificent bastard move right there. It is. So he's created a free city. He is trying to benefit from her. Um, and ultimately, he's keeping people protected by protecting his own self. Now, when Diana leaves, Julie calls out Nathan for selling out, who then admits to her, he says, this is a bluff. Red dust has actually been proven to be harmful to humans. And uh, he's just as worried about that as anything else. So he sets up L.A. as an open city with himself and Science Frontiers as the most powerful player in said city. Of course, the resistance gets started again. Uh, they steal the mothership uh, in advance of the visitors getting it. Uh, and Robin's dad, Robert, rams it uh, into the he rams the super special triax laser that would have destroyed L.A. OK, so stalemate cool. again, and now the visitors yeah. are checking people's cars outside of L.A.'s city limits. Okay. By the third episode, there's a concentration camp or a forced labor camp, and it's clear that this is not the only one. Uh, and the collaborationist government is struggling to keep the precarious balance between the resistance and the occupiers, and that's Science Frontiers. That's Nathan Lane. or It's Nathan Bates. Nathan Bates. Oh, we should keep a ding tile tally. <laughs> you have a hotel bell over there. Or that's, that's one. Yeah. Yep. No, I got. <laughs> um, so Who he's knows? trying to keep this balance and with him in power, right? By okay. the fifth episode, the visitors are running a youth corps that uses collaborators to then train children to fight on behalf of the visitors. Uh, Bates institutes a curfew to curb resistance activity. And we trudge on seeing Kyle who hates his daddy. Uh, Bates. So Kyle's Kyle's is Nathan Bates's son. Son. Okay. Yeah. So his middle name is who hates his daddy. Um, but <laughs> he's working with Ham and Donovan and Julie by this point, and he's a heartthrob. Um, and Julie is working because for, he has to be. Yeah. And Julie's working for Bates, but spying on Bates. And Bates is trying to keep the peace, but clearly keens toward the visitors because they have power and he has to kind of, you know, be in bed with them. And at this point, it's still not that vampy. It's not that soap opera-y um, because it is still kind of thriller-y. Okay. It is, it is kind of interesting. You have this open city where a resistance movement is illegal, but at the same time, they, they do want to do, like, resistance yeah. shit and the visitors want to do shoot people shit and eat people shit but they can't within LA but outside of LA and Bates is like I can't take care of outside of LA I can take care of LA and his own son is now a part of the resistance movement very Casablanca ding <laughs> like exactly what I thought yeah Um. also Lisbon that too yeah yeah so after about the seventh or eighth episode, the plot does start to swing around into a lot more ridiculous polls. Um, and it makes sense uh, because to make this series, they had half the money per episode as the miniseries did. 
and mm. they had half the time to produce those episodes as the miniseries did. <sighs> and the miniseries only had three episodes. So yeah. you're doing half the budget and half the production time, and you're supposed to do 24 episodes. So it became, as the St. Louis Post-Dispatch called it, quote, a silly, loathsome mess. It must surely rank as one of the worst TV sci-fi experiments ever. What was once a pretty decent science fiction saga with good drama, humor, and suspense ends up becoming Dynasty with lizard makeup and laser guns. Okay. That's that's very concise. Yeah. There's, there's, there's not a whole lot more... Critically speaking, to be said there. Right. I, I will. So so I remember two things mm-hmm. vividly about the V TV series. I remember the crummy, like even by the by the standards of the 80s. Sure. Bad. Um uh special effects of the of the shuttlecraft flying well, those were almost all i'm gonna call it stock footage but those were almost all footage from the miniseries just oh, repurposed yeah okay and all recut right. and badly so yeah okay so like there you, you said, go yeah one uh-huh. i remember that really clearly and and just the the craft design i remember it was it was intensely 80 it 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 Presaged the design of the Ford probe, like it was. It was all, it was all these rounded, yeah. semi-organic kind of curves and yep. like yeah. I remember that vividly. Mm-hmm. And then I I remember one of the because I never watched any of the episodes of the actual show because it was after my bedtime, if I remember right, and um the the miniseries just a couple of moments of the miniseries i'd caught had had fucked me up enough there was no way i was going to get anywhere near the show but i remember seeing uh there was some episode of the tv series where there was some like super lizard i remember i remember the, the actor there was a clip of of an actor in lizard face makeup mm-hmm like taking off a robe and it was this big muscular dude. And I just, I remember, I remember that clip. I mean, there were, there were a couple weddings. There were a couple trials. Okay. Again, it gets really bad. Um, Okay. And there, what, what I, what I, what I remember from the clip was it was like, there was some resort or some secret like hideaway and and I remember women in swimsuits and this one alien taking off a robe. Oh, like that a, might have like been a, in the uh the one where they they ran into the fat chef in a white outfit trope. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I that, that I just, didn't that's, stick with me on the okay, watching. That's but... that's that's the one the one because yeah. I remember I remember as a 10 year old, nine year old, mm-hmm. look at that going. Wow, that's bad. Like, <laughs> like even even at that age, just like right. that is not where this show started. You know, <laughs> no. Um. So yeah, those those are those are my two endearing memories of of anything anything having to do 
with with the VTV series. And and from what you're describing about the first couple of episodes, it actually sounds like there was some meat on that bone at oh, the beginning. Was so much good. It was so much good stuff. It really was. I, Don't get me wrong. It was still really high melodrama pretty early on. Like yeah. Elizabeth develops telekinetic powers almost immediately and it gets weird. But well, okay. I mean, yeah. she'd already used 1980s energy powers to defuse a thermonuclear weapon. Well, so it's like again, do. I'm going to justify that. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. you don't know. Like, right, right. You know, you have half human, half alien baby. You can do anything with that. That's true. That's true. Especially if soap opera logic applies. You yeah. can literally do anything Yep. at that point. And I think even with all of the meaningful good stuff that was going on in the writing of the first couple of episodes, there was still deep down the lurking potential for soap opera. Yeah. Because of all the circumstances and probably because of the prior experience of the writers. Somewhat. Yeah. Uh, But a lot of them had been previous sci-fi writers. Um, Okay. Although, you know, it's not like $6 million man was immune from uh, immune to, you know, melodrama. So true. And I'll get into the ridiculous of this uh, ridiculousness of the second half of the series in a a few minutes. But first, I want to pay off the opening news reports, the Freedom News Network broadcast that that I loved. Um, At at first, we see it on a TV in the background. You know, it's the TV within TV with people watching it. Right. Um, But after that first time it shows up, it actually shifts to being the beginning part of the episode. Um, It's not a cold open. It's the thing after the credits, though. Okay, and, and each time it's with Howard K. Smith as the anchor. Okay, now in the third episode, uh, he mentions that Israelis and Arabs combined forces but were turned back by a counterattack. They also straight up compared LA to Lisbon in World War II, which the resistance denounces. Um, and then it finishes with a story of a high school senior in Ohio who led a successful attack in Bears Point, Kentucky. Now, there's an interesting moment in the third episode that I found rather jarring, too. The the visitors who were actually eating us didn't fire on unarmed kids at all who ran away from them. Mm. Perhaps perhaps having visitors would actually be a better thing for us nowadays. Um, mm. Anyway, in the fifth. So the people who are eating humans. Treated people better while armed around them. Uh, Now, the fifth episode sees the Freedom News Network broadcast kind of settle in. It's used to establish where the visitors are succeeding and failing uh, and that there's a large narrative, a larger narrative that we're seeing play out in L.A. Quote, the Freedom Network Medal of Valor is awarded this week to Anna Horowitz, who led a contingent of Grey Panthers on a raid on a visitor armory where they destroyed the gun, the control panels of 16 visitor sky fighters with baseball bats before escaping unharmed. Nice. Yeah. So it's stuff like that. And it's it's just really cool, like sets the table for us. There's also, like I said, a blooming romance triangle between Kyle and Elizabeth, who's really only just two years old, but they claim that she's eight, even though she's actually a full adult now. Um, and her mom, Robin, who has all the bad judgment when it comes to men, always. Remember, she was seduced by Brian and she was a 16 year old. So she's a teen mom. Yeah. Seduced by Brian. Um, this time she ends up getting seduced by another visitor b- before leaving the show halfway through and moving up. Mm. to Chicago. Um, now back to the, uh, the freedom news network quote, 
The Freedom Network Medal of Valor is awarded this week posthumously to Miguel Ramirez, a migrant worker who, with his fellow workers, barricaded themselves in the Alamo and held out against fierce visitor fighting for two weeks. Miguel elected to blow up the Alamo rather than let it fall into visitor hands, <laughs> which... Uh, there's some there's some remarkable 80s level dissonance going on there yeah yeah or not may, I, dissonance might not be the right word remarkable 80s level right uh uh cultural blindness well i don't know, or, I don't know. or is what? this kind of a subversion i mean this time they're not letting the visitors take over the fucking alamo all right fair <laughs> you know could be. I'd, I'd, yeah. We'd we'd have to we'd have to find out about God help us. We'd actually have to find out about authorial intent. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> Why start now? Because because yeah, that could be interpreted a couple of ways. Like yeah, that could be really subversive. Like <laughs> or or it yeah. could be you 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 did not actually pay close attention to who was fighting at the Alamo. Right. Like scene, and and, yeah. and 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 right now living in the decade we're living in my knee-jerk reaction is is the latter <laughs> like, yeah really so hey, like yeah okay in that same episode bates made the possession of firearms in la a capital offense which is just wild to me given that it started with a very pro-texas freedom network report and mentioning successful yeah. fights in texas but also concentration camps there also, Bates is a self-appointed CEO of a business that created the very thing that could kill everyone. And he's like, hey, no guns or we'll kill you. Also in this episode, uh, and this might have been this, the episode that you're remembering, rich humans are intermixing with the visitors at a luxury party in the L.A. Hills. And some people are actively being chased and brutalized, literally within view of them, and they do nothing about it. The visitors have come up with a new way to process the meat of humans, complete with a fat chef and a white visitor outfit. And also by this point, firing an Uzi from the crotch is all the rage. Uh, it's like Uzis and ninjas, and that's the 80s. Like, there were no ninjas in this TV series, but that's the only thing that was missing. It was Uzis and ninjas growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And we get the thesis yeah. statement from Nathan Bates. It's his ego driving it. Here's a series of quotes from him and his fixer, fixer Mr. Chang, uh, whom he has torture his own son, Kyle, later. Quote, I intend to keep the peace in the city no matter the cost, Mr. Chang. And the cheapest way is to wipe out the resistance. Nathan Bates. It's the only way. I would just point out that neutrality always favors the oppressors. Mm-hmm. Now, the news broadcast is a pretty regular occurrence. Bangkok fell, but the rest of Southeast Asia keeps on fighting, which is interesting because I figured they'd say that Vietnam fell, but it kind of showed how serious, just to show how serious it was, you know. Um, Birmingham yeah. fought the visitors and set them all on fire, um, which, and then Philip K. Dick says, uh, Philip K. Smith says, uh, it is said that you can hear the rebel yell in the streets of Dixie tonight. So close. So close. Um, here's another one. The Freedom Network Medal of Valor awarded this week to Dr. Harvey Walkman of, or yeah, it was Walkman of Kansas City, Missouri. Dr. Walkman freed 12 boys from a visitor youth camp, uh, youth corps camp and reunited them with their families in Chicago. 
And it was around this episode, which is about episode eight of the series, that the trend to soap opera was 100% inescapable. By this point, Diana has a lizard Latin lover that she kills by the end of the episode. Elizabeth uses her telekinetic powers, which is, I still say, weird, um, to keep Kyle from getting shot by opening a car door into the shooter because love. And the only two black characters in the episode, Elias is a, a series regular, and Glenna, who is a resistance leader from a different cell, well, they fall for each other immediately because she is a black woman working with the resistance. Uh, then she then betrays them for her self-gain to take over a cobalt mine that the visitors need for themselves. And she takes it over to charge a, a higher price to the visitors. She calls Elias fool in that 1980s kind of way. In the next episode, uh, the blending of technology and religious seerness overlaps quite a bit. There's some sort of four-digit code that allows Nathan Bates free entry and exit from L.A., but the rest of the population of this free city faces disintegration if they try to leave due to a force field. A force field that has a four-digit code to get through. And, and it's four-digit on our keyboard code that the visitors came up with. Okay. The code, the code, of course, is Kyle, which is sweet. Also, to start off the whole episode, there was this report on how the visitors took over Athens and resistance in, quote, citizen towns continues to grow. Here's some more Freedom News Network stuff. Uh, quote, the Freedom Network Medal of Valor is awarded this week to Janet Weinberg, a Daytona Beach computer programmer who led a raid on a visitor detention camp, freeing over 200 American prisoners. Pretty cool. The Freedom All Network right. Medal of Valor is awarded to Marilyn McGeorge of Biloxi, Mississippi, who rammed and sank a visitor patrol boat with her husband's boat. That was for the Christmas episode. Uh, okay. The Freedom Network also celebrated Philippine resistance, lamented the failures of Brazilian resistance, and celebrated resistance outside of Taos, New Mexico. In this okay. episode, the visitors are regular visitors to Elias's. Uh, he has a front club. So he he went back and started oh, his own okay. business and it becomes the front for the resistance. And it turns out it was an L.A. speakeasy back in the day. So there's an underground to it. There's, you know, it's, it's you know, good writing, okay. I would say, actually. It's OK. Cool. Right. Yeah, and it's right. called Club Creole, okay. which cool. Um, It's absolutely safe house for resistance underground. So under the ground, you've got the resistance again above them. Yeah. You've got all the visitors coming to that specific club and they bully Willie into not playing a song on the piano because they don't like his version of deck the halls because remember his thing is to get words wrong. The visitors start singing their national anthem. I think I couldn't quite figure that part out, but it seems like that. And at that point, Julie starts singing America, the beautiful. And even during the singing, Donovan is moved. Uh, he's moved. In such a way, here's the thing. Mark Singer playing Michael Donovan moves yeah. around as though every single thing is a dramatic action. So, you know, I hear the cat scratching at the door. What was that? I I need to zip my fly. Oh, here I go. Like I pull my yeah, shoulder yeah, into gnawing, it. Oh, gnawing my God. on the scenery. Just, yeah. just, arnia, just arnia, arnia. huge huge manful bites so he's moved yeah. to move that way during america the beautiful 
Like it is, I mean, literally wow. it like, you know how the Riker maneuver is kind of a funny maneuver, right? Yeah. You know, he puts his leg over thing. Yeah. This guy like finds ways to double jump out of a bed of a truck, like, or, or grabs, grabs the trunk of a tree and swings around just a little bit extra, like mm-hmm. so extra. Yeah. Um, and no. I mean, and, and, I, and the yeah. Riker maneuver in, in Jonathan Frakes' defense, the yeah, Riker maneuver is because the poor some bitch couldn't sit properly in a chair. Yeah. So, <laughs> no. but yeah. But he moves wow. his head and body like it's a goddamn action sequence, even even during America the Beautiful. Yeah. One of the only constants of this series is his torsion based movement for everything, and that his shirt ends up. <laughs> <laughs> It's torsion based. That's yeah. good. I like yeah. that. That's and and, and, and no. And the funny thing is, I can I can picture literally his body language throughout the yep. entire miniseries, and I'm like, "Yep, you're completely not wrong." Yeah, okay. and it's really pronounced in the series, <laughs> and and also his his you know his shirt ends up unbuttoned to his xiphoid process. Like, <laughs> it's. <laughs> Well, you know, because in the eighties he was hot. That was, you know, his, and that was his thing. body type yeah. was the was the thing. Yeah. yeah. So for the Christmas <laughs> episode, they end up blowing up Club Creole. Um, which means that the resistance has to go on the run after that. Uh also Elizabeth has a clone that Diana creates, um, who then goes feral and attacks people in the park. Um, Ham gets really mad about orphans. And some of his backstory comes out, and then he ends up dressed up like Santa Claus at the end. Okay. So that was their Christmas episode. So back to the Freedom Network Medal. The Freedom Network Medal of Valor is awarded to Dixie Riley, a high school science teacher who used his home uh, computer to hack into the visitor security system and use the information that he learned to prevent a sneak attack on Memphis, Tennessee. Additionally, there's a resistance in Italy along the Appian Way, some specifically Midwestern success, Ron Bishop commandos in Grand Canyon. And I couldn't figure out if Ron Bishop was either a reference to the motorcycle Daredevil or a British archer. Um, Because both kind of I'm going to bet the yeah, but I'm going to bet based on 80s in the US, I'm going to say motorcycle Daredevil. Yeah, yeah. The Freedom Uh, Network. The Freedom Network Medal of Valor is awarded this week to Benny Scalini, an insurance salesman from Atlanta, Georgia, who derailed a train carrying 600 human prisoners to a visitor labor camp. Half of the prisoners were able to escape, which is kind of bleak, but a little I get bit. It. Yeah. But yeah. Also, yeah. They, so, they, yeah. so it occurs to me, one of the one of the narrative issues mm-hmm. with this particular device mm-hmm. is when you go naming Mr. Scalini uh-huh. as the guy who derailed that train mm-hmm. that makes it a lot harder for him to stay anonymous and derail more train. <laughs> this is very true. Like, yeah. I mean, I understand narratively why you got to do that. On the other hand, think yeah. a little bit about how exactly the format of this works. It is a morale booster. And at the same time, I sure hope he has some pseudonyms. I really. Yeah. You know? Like all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Also, Cordova is, is the last free city in Spain, complete with savage street battles and Spain 
for the Spanish uh, and death to visitors in graffiti. Also, Bates has placed L.A. in martial law and he's outlawed the resistance. And that makes the news. Um, And that means he's going to die soon because he's taking sides. And sure enough, there's a subplot about discrediting and subdividing the resistance, complete with a brutal resistance crew that carries out assassination attempts on Nathan Bates at a prisoner exchange uh, to close the episode. But but don't worry, because there's a computer generated avatar of him still pretending to rule the city by video screen. Uh, and and it's really being run by Mr. Chang, his fixer, and the visitors. And in that episode, Elias gets disintegrated. He dies. And we're starting to see the cast is getting shrunk. You're getting rid of Nathan Bates. You're getting rid of Elias after the Christmas episode. Um, then the Freedom Network Medal of Valor is awarded this week to Frankie Weatherwax, a mechanic from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Frankie single-handedly stopped a visitor attack on a junior high school by taking over a laser cannon and turning it on the visitors. Also, there's a Hawaiian resistance and an English resistance, of course, called the Robin Hood Brigade. And at this point, I started to notice that all the resistance or all the, the visitors vehicles were white. They were white Jeeps, white vans, white limousines. Um, they all kept driving white things. Um, just kind of do which you is, think that's you know, a budgetary thing yeah it's a budgetary thing and it's a, a quick signal that like you know it's kind of like when you see six black suvs driving very close to each other on the road mm-hmm. you're like oh those are bad guys yeah, okay so this yeah. was just that you know okay um also good marketing in case you do want to make toys mm. so the next one uh is the freedom network medal of valor is awarded this week to Stuart kaminsky who ran an underground railroad between Atlanta and Philadelphia. Stewart was able to save over 300 people from the visitor work camps in Georgia. And then after that, there's no more Freedom News Network. So what I want to talk about is why it's pretty cool that Howard K. Smith lent his talents to the show. Do you, Does the name at least ring a bell for you? Vaguely. Okay. Yeah. It is kind of like a, this must be an old man anchor name, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was originally one of Murrow's boys. You've heard of the Murrow boys, right? Uh, yes. But Edward R. Murrow's report. Yeah, Edward R. Murrow. I know Edward yeah. R. Murrow. Yeah. And they, they worked with him, specifically under him and with him, across various fronts in World War II. Uh, prior to the American mm-hmm. entrance into the war, uh, Smith had actually interviewed Hitler, Himmler, and Goebbels. And that means I've got two people in the V series who have in this podcast who have interviewed him. Okay. Uh, cool. You know, Ms. Thompson and Mr. Smith. Now um, in the spring of 1941, uh, Edward R. Murrow had brought Smith into the CBS Berlin bureau where he was soon in trouble for refusing to broadcast propaganda that the Nazis inserted into his scripts. The Gestapo seized his notebooks and threw him out. Sorry. Is it Gestapo? Just, just Gestapo. Palatal G. Granada. Or not, not Palatal. Glottal. Glottal G. Okay. Yeah. The Gestapo. They seized his Nazi books. No, notebooks. uh, And they threw him out. Uh, And and so he left for Switzerland uh, the day before the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. This, yeah. (laughs) And once the U.S. Talk about close run things. Yeah. 
So once the U.S. entered into the war, Smith continued to work in France and in Switzerland, and he was among the reporters who were in Berlin in May 45, recapping the German surrender. And after the war ended, uh, ended Smith, Howard Smith, spent covered uh, he uh, he covered the Nuremberg trials, where the horror of Nazi atrocities left a lasting impression on him, which affected many of his later actions. Uh, he took over the London Bureau from Murrow, reporting sympathetically on the 1945 labor government's developments of the welfare state in dispatches that were not too well received by an American audience. And then across Europe, uh, reporting on conditions throughout Europe. Once the Iron Curtain had fallen, he was one of a few Western reporters who went behind the curtain to examine life there, too. Smith wrote The State of Europe, which is uh, his book. In it, he reported showing that the U.S. and the USSR were both missing the point and that social reform and political liberty were sorely needed in both spheres of control. Now, naturally, this gets him named in something called the Red Channels, which was a document published by a journal called Counterattack, whose stated goal was to, quote, expose the most important aspects of communist activity in America each week and to compile factual information on communists, communist fronts, and other subversive organizations. And finally, to assist, consult with, and provide factual information on communist activities. Counterattack got started in 1947. It ran until 1955. Its founders were American Business Consultants, Inc. president and former FBI agent John Keenan, American Business Consultants, Inc. vice president and former FBI agent Kenneth Beerley, and textile importer Alfred Kohlberg, who just happened to be a member of the anti-communist China, uh, uh, the anti-communist group called the China Lobby. And he was the main found funder of the American Business Consultants, Inc. and an original member of the National Council for the John Birch Society. <laughs> there it is <laughs> okay so these are the people who are targeting smith according to the columbia journalism review counterattack quote had two missions one ostensibly journalistic the other vigorously interventionalist first it set out to expose everyone it could find to who had any connection however dubious or tenuous to anything or anyone associated with communism socialism the soviet union or progressive ideology then, more significantly, Counterattack sought to rally its subscribers to action against the individuals it targeted. In its assault on performers and production personnel in radio and television, Counterattack exhorted its readers to write protest letters to the corporate sponsors of programs featuring actors with purported links to the left. So, in short, they're doxing people in the 1950s. So, Counterattack which from the beginning had a already denounced Henry A. Wallace, the Progressive Party, the American Labor Party, the National Farmers Union, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, and the Congress of Industrial Workers in 1947, and with two years was denouncing the Scientific and Cultural Conference for World Peace in 1949, and they published the Red Channels in June of 1950. Ed Sullivan had already been consulting these folks so as to avoid booking any pinkos. By the way, <laughs> in a congressional hearing, they admitted to a subscription list of about 15 to 2,000, 1,500 to 2,000, and that's it. That's it. That's all they fucking had. And with that subscription list, 
of about 1,500 to 2,000 people, they were able to deny work to people by targeting them through the red channels. And at their peak, at their peak, they mm. reached 7,500 subscriptions. 151 actors, writers, musicians, broadcast journalists, and others were accused of communist leanings and manipulation of the entertainment industry. And almost all of them ended up on the blacklist. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask. So so when does this segue into McCarthy? Uh now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh here's a few excerpts from the Red Channel's introduction. Quote Several commercially sponsored dramatic series are used as sounding boards, particularly with reference to current issues in which the party is critically interested. Academic freedom, civil rights, peace, the H-bomb, etc., with radios in most American homes and with approximately 5 million TV sets in use, the Common Form and the Communist Party USA now rely more on radio uh, and TV than on the press and motion pictures as belts to transmit pro-Sovietism to the American public. And of course, more quotes, no cause which seems calculated to arouse support among people in show business is ignored. The overthrow of Francoist Spain, the fight against anti-Semitism and Jim Crow, civil rights, world peace, the outlawing of the H-bomb are all used. Around such pretended objectives, the hardcore of party organizers gather a swarm of reliables and well-intentioned liberals to exploit their names and their energies. Yeah. So, yeah. And again, their subscription at its peak was 7,500 people. So, so why is it, why is it that media and entertainment are always the enemy, the, the, the proclaimed enemy of the right? Like, I, I mean, Hitler started with Mein Kampf. And he decried modernism. And so I think that there's, I don't think that's the, the creator of this, this trope, but I think that it, that kind of scratches at it. I think the idea that art reflects culture and the right wants to shape culture. Okay. I suppose, so, yeah, that makes sense. But it's yeah. it's just it strikes me as being like the same shit all over again every fucking time. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, I do. And and I I don't I don't understand how any movement that wants to try to build its audience is going to make people whose job is to build an audience into the enemy. Like TV writers get paid mm -hmm. to get eyeballs on a screen. Right. Musicians get paid to get people to listen to them. So like making those people your enemy does not seem like the way right. to, to grow. Like if, if you know, you want to co-op those people. It's like the the uh, the line from uh, I want to say Michael Collins, uh, mm -hmm. the the George Clooney movie about the lawyer. I'm not the guy Michael you kill. Clayton. I'm the guy you buy. Yeah. yeah, I'm not the guy you kill. I'm the guy you buy. Right. You know, like right. it's desperately cynical, but like 
Yeah. And yet I'm not they're... the guy you make an enemy. I'm right. the one you co-opt. Right. Like, Absolutely. You, you fucked this play up. But they yeah. keep doing it. Well, I think it does come down to it comes down to desperate control and it comes down to this idea that you remember they have they're reactionary. So they're reacting against something that they see as inherently insidious and impressive. Um, And and this was in their minds, this was a defensive tactic, because according to Red Channels, quote, Articulate anti-communists are blacklisted and smeared with the venomous intensity, which is characteristic of red fascists alone. Okay, hold on. Uh, I'm going to read to you the next line. Pause to let Ed go on for five minutes. <laughs> okay, I wait. wrote that. <laughs> yeah, I'm go sure on. you because you know me. <laughs> but okay, wait. Uh, um, so 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 the quote is. Um, articulate anti-communists are blacklisted. Yes. Okay. Uh, no, no. Um, articulate anti-communists may or may not have people look at them and go, you know, you sound like a fucking Nazi. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing. Like the, the, the people who are blacklisted were no shit blacklisted they it was you are not going to work because we don't because you you've been you've been implicated in this in this political movement we don't we don't want to be associated with because it terrifies people uh and and so you're you're not gonna we're gonna starve you to death that that has demonstrably not ever happened to any right-wing thinker in this country literally ever oh but it could you say oh fuck you no (laughs) um like no when 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 people make fun of jordan peterson or uh ben shapiro Mm -hmm. no that's not that's not that isn't blacklisting that is pointing out that clearly ben shapiro has just never given his wife an orgasm and he never will Right. And like we feel bad for her because holy shit. Yeah. That's that's not the same thing by any stretch of measurement as actually saying you are not ever going to work in this industry again. Mm-hmm. Um telling uh Jordan Peterson and what's his name? Trent Stevens. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember the guy's name. There's some, there's some sexist asshole who's okay. like all over TikTok, but who's been, who's been, I, I want to say he's been deplatformed de- off of Twitter because the shit he says is just so fucking toxic and, and so deeply misogynistic. Um, and it's like, no, you just can't spread your shit here. Mm-hmm. But every, but, but like on the right, that's like, oh my God. Oh my God, the Nazis are coming. No, you're the goddamn Nazi. Mm-hmm. And we're telling you we don't want you sitting at our table because if we let you sit here, that makes all of us Nazis too. No, I think the, the cancel culture of anti-communists uh, is very characteristic of red fascists. I... Okay, and now and now red fascists let's talk about that for a second how Mm -hmm. politically illiterate is that shit 
red fascists. No, fascists are not red. No, no. I don't think it's politically illiterate. I think it's clever branding. It's you are you are conflating two things in most people's minds who just I don't pay attention to these things. Uh, Both sides are obviously equally wrong. And then you have co-opted their silence and or you've Mm. paved the way for uh, fascists uh, to to be just as valid as reds. I wish I could say you were wrong. Yeah. But it 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 galls me on such a deep seated level. Mm-hmm. I I had a I, I only took a couple of courses in political science in college. Mm-hmm. But I took a couple. And and one of my professors had spent his career developing a modern definition of fascism. Mm-hmm. And his central argument was that the the uh, central party of the Chinese government mm-hmm. had made a shift from being a an authoritarian communist state to being functionally fascistic, mm-hmm. and and somewhere along the way. Some part of his no, I will fucking fight you. Got somehow I picked up part of that because the definition of fascism is now something that I get so deeply goddamn angry about. And and I'm like, no, you don't get to fucking do that. Words have a fucking meaning. Mm-hmm. And red fascists, no. You want to say red dictators? Okay. Red authoritarians. Okay, sure. fine. You want to simplify it even more than that? Red bullies. Okay. Mm-hmm. But no, you don't get to say red fascists because they're not the fucking same thing. No, they're not. So this mm. didn't stop Smith from what he'd set out to do, by the way. After being blacklisted and then that ended... He wrote a report for CBS called, quote, Who Speaks for Birmingham? And he did this in 1961. In it, he uncovered the Bull Connor, the KKK connections, and that uh, led to them being allowed uh, to beat up. uh, Well, let me try this again. He uncovered the connection between Bull Connor and the KKK that allowed freedom fighters to get beat up, uh, as well as a plenty of other black folks in Birmingham. Freedom fighters or freedom riders? Freedom riders. I apologize. No worries. Uh, uh, Smith also ended the report uh, documentary with the aphorism attributed to uh, Edmund Burke. Quote, the only thing necessary for uh, for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The network's head of news insisted that Smith was editorializing and told him to delete the reference. Smith argued that there was right and there was wrong. Right was not a halfway point between good and evil. For his troubles, he was suspended and fired by CBS president William S. Paley, who did so in a response to the fact that Birmingham TV affiliate to CBS disaffiliated itself and CBS got sued. So after this, Smith went to ABC. So he'd held his guns and been fired for it. And CBS paid the price a bit because the, you know, and Birmingham's a big audience. 
And and this is, you know, when CBS is nascent, you know, as a as a because this is 61. Mm. Um, so after this, uh, Smith went to ABC and and he was the anchor when it was reported that uh, Robert Kennedy was shot in 1968. Uh, Smith also moderated several debates between Buckley and Vidal. Uh, and during the Vietnam conflict, however, uh, Smith began keening rightward in his commentaries and his editorials, and he was in full support of the war effort uh, through the rest of his career. He saw the war as an important uh, preemptive strike and contrasted it with, against the failure to do so against Hitler in the 1940s. So he's starting to buy the red fascist thing. Mm. I disagree with him, shockingly enough, but at least this guy was somewhat consistent in his reasoning. Yeah. We should have done it against Hitler and we should do it here. Yeah. It wasn't blind jingoism and it wasn't based and it was based on his own experience. Nixon granted him a one hour interview in 1971. And at that point, I'd have reconsidered my positions, but <laughs> whatever. So Smith seems to have retired by 79 somewhat bitterly at the changing shape of his news broadcast. So having Howard K. Smith play himself in a news broadcast that reported on behalf of the resistance in a country and a world occupied by alien colonizers really added a lot of gravitas to the early parts of the show, which unfortunately was in short supply given what I've already said about the series turn toward melodrama and soap operas. Here's a quick rundown of all the uh, major plot lines. Like I said before, it started as a post-occupation fought off, uh, post-occupation fought off resurgence of the bad guy. And it settled into a main plot about having a free city with a self-appointed businessman in charge. Mm. Definitely there's some 1980s vibes in there. By the late 1970s, CEO salaries had risen roughly from 17 times to 23 times the average worker's salary. By 1989, it would rise to 45 times the average worker's salary. So having your CEO is a bad guy. Um, and that's more than just doubling it seems to be in 10 years, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, adjusting for inflation, CEO pay has risen 90 times faster than workers' earnings. But that's just the money. It's not like money can affect politics, right? If we... You fucker. <laughs> I went down such a rabbit hole for this part, and then I was like, I don't need to write 150 pages on this thing. Let's cut it down to 99. So huh. I'm just going to give you huh. the skimming of, okay. of this part. If we look at just L.A., the history of the mayorship in L.A., and that's where most of your writers are located, right? Since... L.A. is the main chief executive of the city. If you go all the way back to 1900, L.A. has quite often had some form of businessman turned politician in it. From 1900 to 1983, of the 11 or so mayors that they had, seven of them were business tycoons, owners of big businesses. Though one could argue that Richard Reardon was the prototype for Nathan Lane, as he was very much a businessman, private Dang. equity. Yeah, private equity specifically. Uh, before running for mayor. However, Reardon doesn't come to power until 1993, a decade after. So I cannot honestly say that Art imitated life with him, despite the similarities. The series starts pulling the visitors' religion into things, too. During the Christmas episode, there was talk of their main deity, Zahn, the visitors' deity who says that all creatures seek to reunite with those we care about in goodwill and brotherhood. We meet Jacob, who is a blind pacifist, who also is a technical wizard, who knows that someday Ammon, the high priest of Zahn, will find Elizabeth. 
And at one point, Charles maneuvers Diana into marrying him. So we see a bit about marriage ceremonies, which costs probably most of the budget on costuming that looked entirely 1980s. They involve the biting the head off of the ceremonial mouse. We also learn that prior to a marriage, the uh, the bride has a ceremonial bath with ceremonial eels. Okay. Yeah. And that after the marriage ceremony, there's a ceremonial cups of steaming something or another. And then there's the Feast of Ramalan, where you sacrifice the youngest warrior because reasons. Um, in okay. the plots, they also put sexiness into it, mostly for Diana and Lydia to fight over. Um, first, it's somebody named Laird, and then Charles, whose uniform is shirt, uh, his uniform shirt is buttoned down even further than Donovan's regular shirts. Um, Charles wow. even Charles even has a hoop earring in 1983. Um, it's quite something. Uh, the love triangle exists for Elizabeth and Robin and Kyle, which is gross. Uh, then Robin falls for Bruce Davidson at one point because uh, he's in the movie or in the TV series who is a resistor, but actually he's a visitor working for Diana. Elizabeth does telekinetic things to Kyle's body like. Okay. His body. Got it. Yeah. Wow. All right. There's there's also inside agents similar to Martin, but since Martin's twin Philip is now there not only to hunt down the resistance, but also to put Lydia on trial and to keep Diana in line to make sure she and Lydia follow all of the cultural strictures. And so they use that to push legalism buttons. There's a whole trial aspect of the visitors under Philip that involves snakes, a hot stone, and weirdly explodey sticks. Um, it turns out you can appeal your judgment of guilty by challenging someone to mortal combat for the visitors. So, of course, we see Diana and Lydia fighting very, very, very poorly. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh okay. my god. Like it was so bad. Um also Philip later has a change of heart when he finds out how Martin felt about the resistance so there could be a reunion of sorts cuz it's the same actor. And there were a few different episodes that dealt with setting up and reaching out to various resistance cells everywhere, but none of the episodes ever really built on each other. They're just using it as a vehicle to introduce new one-shot characters to the main cast. And, of course, the father and son stuff between Kyle and his dad, which resolved just before dad dies off. By the middle of the series, they'd killed off Elias, they'd moved Ham and Robin to Chicago, and they were whittling down the resistance and visitors to just the core four. Um, Julie, Mike, Elizabeth, and uh, Willie with Kyle on the side. The amount of faith that was shown to this series dwindled quickly, causing it to plummet even quicker in the ratings. And then it was over. The final episode wasn't even written. And as the show was canceled, uh, they, it was, it was canceled while they were in production for what became the final episode. So they did some rewrites. They still made it a bit of a cliffhanger. Like I said, Diana has put a bomb aboard the leader shuttle, which is carrying Elizabeth back to the visitor homeworld with Kyle stowed aboard. At its very core, though, this series was about a free city in an occupation with all the melodrama that accompanied it. Okay. So that's the series. That's I spent 26 hours of my life that I will not get back. <laughs> I I applaud your dedication to Oof. watch all of it because, yeah. Wow. And you heard that plot. I mean, it just. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. No, it's... And okay. So Donovan does the torsion based movement, right? Yeah. Lydia and, and Diana 
are skull fucking each other with their eyes and they're smoldering in this. Be careful, Diana. The snake that bites has venom. Oh, Lydia. Only a young snake wouldn't know how to control its venom. How dare you? It's that kind of wow. Yeah. I mean, just like, like, okay, just like, just, just get it over with and start tripping already. Like, come on. (laughs) But of course, but see, like modernly, there'd Mm -hmm. be like a lesbian subtext to that because obviously, yeah, but, but in the eighties, but in the eighties, you, you, you couldn't get away with that. So we, we have to just look at it and go, they didn't intend for it to be there, but Holy shit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and while you were talking about some of that, I actually tried to look up, uh, uh, Diana wedding V and, and of course everything I got was princess Diana. Ah, Followed, followed by images of Diana and Lydia, as you say, skull fucking each other with their eyes. <laughs> like the hairstyles. Right? I told you, right? What the? What the? Oh, what? Jesus. You know what you do? Look up uh, when you get a chance. Look up yeah. pharmacist on, on Mothership V. The outfit that that woman wore was like, it, it looks like. Um, really shitty household appliance effort to dress like a Borg. Like, oh wow, corrugated. That's unfortunate. Plastic tubing everywhere. Really? Yeah, it's that's uh, unfortunate. And I'm sorry, but any any movie that makes Bruce Davidson the the sexy hunk for any number of episodes. Yeah. Ooh. Like, <laughs> We're done. Good like, lord! This, this is yeah. just not working for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you don't remember who Bruce Davidson was, he played the the racist senator in the first X Men movie. Well, okay. I mean, he was a lot younger when in V the... was on, so you yeah. know. But still, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, I, it's I got. Really I really don't something. have much else other than other than that. What what comes to me though, thinking uh-huh. about it, is I'm you know looking at the photos I was looking at online. There's a really weird, very '80s set of aesthetics that V yes. had in common with Buck Rogers. Yeah, I think they like, had like the same seamstress and budget. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lot of body suits. <laughs> A lot of body, a lot suits. of body suits, and and the kinds of fabrics that were used. Mm-hmm. Uh, Princess, yeah. what was her name? Princess Ardala, oh, the the femme, femme fatale from Buck Rogers. Like mm-hmm. lots of her outfits in sure. my memory. Anyway, I was looking at what what Diana had on, and I was and I was thinking that it reminded me really strongly of like everything Princess Ardala ever wore. It was all the same yep. kind of, you know, in the eighties, it was, it was a new thing, you know, shiny synthetic kind of fabrics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with, 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 you know, like today it looks ridiculous cause it's plasticky and crinkly looking, but back then right. it was, it was, you know, cutting Future. edge futuristic yeah. and whatever all. And, and it's just an interesting example of Z rust because if you were to like anybody listening to this right now, seriously, go look up Diana 
VTV series and just look at any of the costume pictures they show and you will immediately go, wow, that's really 80s. Well, and you go back. I mean, honestly, unless you're too young to remember what the 80s were, in which case you'd be like, wow, that's shitty. But (laughs) it's it's very faithful to the original series, though, in terms of the costuming. And we talked about that a couple episodes ago. Um, where like if you look at the costuming, it is that that brutalist pro fashy. We're just going to use red instead of black uh, yeah. for all the black parts, and then black instead of red for all the red parts. Yeah, uh, kind of outfit. You got the jack boots. You got the triangle. You got all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in many ways, you know, a triangle is is cheaper probably to create because you can make more of them from a strip of cloth uh, for multiple outfits. Yeah. Um, and there are, and and then they start getting into using vests as well. And I believe Charles, um, I'm pretty sure it was Charles. Uh, he is played by the guy that I always confuse with Apollo. Um, but um, but he he dressed, I think, all in black, and he he definitely had the '80s, you know, BG's hair going on. Um, but yeah, he wore all black. There's some people that wore a little bit of black and gold. Like you, you could distinguish like who the really, really important players were, um, based on like, oh, they have a different outfit from everybody else. But you're right. Like the outfits are what the eighties saw as being, you know, the future and alien. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, I see why you confuse that actor with Apollo. Yeah. Like, yeah. Facial structure. I can kind of see that. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So, all right. So, uh, what'd you get out of this one? That um, upping the number of episodes and not increasing the budget leads to shitty TV. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, um, and and when you pointed out to me that all of the the shuttle clips were just taken straight from the from the miniseries yeah. and it's like spliced in yeah it it really didn't surprise me at all and and what what really struck me was they didn't even have a season of the show they were they were season minus one like you yep. said and they still wound up relying on Stop. clip shows <laughs> They still wound up having like, you know what? We're just going to take a bunch of shit from, from, yeah. you know, back when we had a budget and we're right, going to right. reuse it. You know, when you, when you look at the runs of any of the Star Trek series, when you get close to the end of a season and the budget is running low, you wind up having an episode where Riker is unconscious and they have to try to dig memories up out of his brain to fight yep. off some yeah, infection or whatever, whatever the hell it was. And, and, <laughs> And it's just, oh, so we're just going to spend the whole series revisiting everything we did. We're going to spend the whole episode revisiting shit we did like earlier this season. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Last season. Like, wow. Either everybody in the writer's room got the flu on the same day or you're running out of money. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the more famous examples, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, wow. And every and I mean, every science fiction show winds up doing it at some point. Um, but when you have to rely on it as an integral part of every episode, that's a pretty bad omen. Yeah. I mean, and (laughs) you know, just, there's so much of the plot where 
like it's almost like the studs were good but nothing after that was good like <laughs> we got really good framing but everything we did after it. that is shit yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it is fascinating to have, like, what would happen if a CEO took over a city? What would happen if you had a free city? What would, mm. you know, and and I am even in favor of, like, hey, kill off people. That's fine. But swing and a miss, like, yeah. re- repeatedly, repeatedly. I mean, geez, I didn't even cover when Donovan and Kyle ended up helping uh, a horse rancher fight against a crooked sheriff who's helping the visitors. Like that was an uh, that was a whole episode, you know. And it sounds like there was also probably pressure on the writers' room to keep things as bottle episode, as as you know, each episode is self-contained. Don't spend too much time on this overarching story arc. We need people to be able to tune in and tune out and not have to keep track of all this shit. Oh, most certainly. Which oh, which like okay from a business standpoint I totally understand that but at the same time this is a story about an invasion and a war right you 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 can't do that <laughs> there was a whole episode you that know. was centered around the fact that Mike would be dropping off supplies soon and so they had to keep the skies clear for him. Like he was the MacGuffin and he barely showed up in it. And then he like, you know, parachuted down or whatnot. And the, the plane crashed. Wow. Um, yeah. It just, the, the, the whole thing just top to bottom was, was very, very flawed. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Cause it, it, it had, had a chance. And, and yeah. again, a free city is fascinating to take a look at. Mm. So, but yeah. All right. So what are you reading? Um, I am reading uh, at the, at the same time that I'm working on the memoirs of Ulysses S grant, which I mentioned last episode, I am reading two gun, Witch by friend of the show, Bishop O'Connell. Mm-hmm. Um, and highly recommended. It is an amazing story. Uh, uh, rooted in things that happened in our history, uh, but um, original and and riffing on them in a very creative way. Um, and yeah, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Um, so that's that's my reading right now. What about you? Uh, so there actually is a a couple of V books. But God damned if I can remember their names, because if you just look up V, you're going to end up with a bunch of V.C. Andrews shit. Yeah. So uh, but there are V books that continue the story and it's apparently canonical uh, in as much as such a thing exists. So I'm yeah. going to recommend people go out and find that stuff. Um, that might be kind of fun. So. All right. Cool. Where can we find you on the social medias? I can be found on social media at Mr. Underscore Blaylock on TikTok. I can be found as E.H. Blaylock on Twitter, uh, where I mostly spend my time retweeting other people's stuff Hmm. Uh, (laughs) because that's a lot easier than trying to come up with any kind of original thought. Um, And like there are a lot of people that I agree with. Um, 
So that's where I can be found. We can be found at www.geekhistorytime.com. Uh, on uh, Twitter, we collectively can be found as Geek History Time. And uh, since you are listening to us, you have found us on one of these services on which uh, we are available, whether that's the Apple Podcast app or uh, Stitcher. And wherever you have, or uh, in the, uh, or we, we, we must be in the, uh, not Google, Android uh, podcast app store, mm-hmm. whatever that is. Wherever it is that you've found us, however you are listening to us, um, please subscribe and give us the five stars that you know we have earned, uh, or at least that Damien's earned. I'm, I ride yeah. on his coattails regularly enough, but um, you know, give give him the five stars he certainly deserves, and the like. You know, I'm, I'll I'll happily continue to ride his coattails, but um, yeah, that's where we collectively can be found. Where can you be found, sir? Uh, you could find me on Twitter or Instagram at duh harmony. There's two H's in the middle. Uh, also November 4th, we're doing capital punishment, uh, at Luna's in Sacramento, $10 in proof of vax. So, all right, that should do it. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, for a geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling twenties.